Several years ago, my friend and colleague Andy Cohn from South Carolina invited me to visit his parents in their home in Pickens, South Carolina. His parents, Fred and Judy Cohn, welcomed me that day like I was one of their own. Only because I prodded, I learned some things about them. Yes, things. Things like Clemson Hall of Fame and the Clemson Circle of Honor and Clemson All-Century Team. Things like Green Bay Packer Hall of Fame and Dallas Cowboys Forever Record Holder. Things. Connections and friendships with people. Things. Like a renowned comedian by the name of Jerry Clower and renowned quarterbacks by the names of Babe Pirelli and Bart Starr. When I finally left their home that day, I realized I had visited some very special folks. A Clemson University icon, a Green Bay Packer icon, a Green Bay Wisconsin beauty, and a couple of Hall of Fame parents. My guest today is their son, Andy Cohn. He will tell their amazing story. Fred Cohn died on December 31st, 2021, and it made the news. His life and his death was a big thing. One of Clemson football's greatest has passed away. Fred Cohn was 95 years old. Legendary coach Frank Howard proclaimed the fullback as the greatest player I ever coached. Fred Cohn is a member of the Clemson University Ring of Honor, and he's in the South Carolina Athletic Hall of Fame. Cohn played in the NFL for the Green Bay Packers and for the Dallas Cowboys. He's also honored in the Packers Hall of Fame. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker. This is Bruce Goddard, and you are listening to View from a Hearse podcast. Uh, my guest is Andy Cohn from Pickens, South Carolina, and I... I've known Andy for, gosh, Andy, I don't know how many years it's been. It's been several, but we were business colleagues and quickly connected and became friends. So, Andy, say hello, and then we're going to start talking about your dad. Well, hello, Bruce. It's good to be with you. And it's been actually, we met each other about nine years ago when the company we both work for now, or or, or that we're both semi-retired from, I should say. Right acquired the company I was working for and the company I was working for was the second biggest death care company in the country. And of course our current employer is the largest and they're five times bigger than what the other company was. So as you well know, there's a lot of angst with any kind of acquisition and you wonder where you're going to fit in, or even if you are going to fit in. So you know, I had all those questions in my mind, and then we got a notice shortly after the go-live date that our senior managing director would be coming around to address all the employees. And I thought, well, this will be a good time for me to see if I'm going to fit in with this crowd or not. And you came to Greenville, and you met with about 100 of us right then, and uh, we met in the chapel there. And after your talk, I said, you know what? 
that was worth whatever SCI pays him to, to be a senior managing director because you put everybody at ease just with your common sense and your short, sweet messages about do what you say you're going to do, engage people, and, and do the right thing. And so that's when we met about nine years ago, and it's, uh, it's been a great friendship. It has. I remember you and I being in Houston together for several days, and I had met you in, in Greenville and knew who you were, obviously very impressed. I, I always asked people, tell me about this person. Tell me about this person That's, as I was going through because I didn't know. But we ended up not long after that spending time in Houston. I really connected right. with you, and it's, it has been a great friendship. But the other thing that happened, and I looked it up, uh, Andy, it was – December of 2016, so about five and a half years ago, I was in Pickens, and you told me about your dad. I don't know how that came up. Uh, it was just somehow I asked you, I think, about your family. I typically do that. And mm-hmm. you told me that your dad was a Clemson football player and that he was in the Hall of, Clemson Hall of Fame, the Circle of Honor, all these things. And then he also – played with the Green Bay Packers. I don't know how much of the information I got that at, at the beginning, but what I do remember that afternoon when we quit working, I said, Andy, can you take me to your dad's house? I want to meet him. You remember that? I do remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It was a wonderful time, and I saw an amazing couple. And I want you to talk about this story. So I want to tell you guys, just so you know what we're talking about, that not only was he this Clemson star, but he was went – on to play with the Green Bay Packers, how he got drafted is a funny story. How he signed a contract is a funny story. He scored the first field goal, I think, in Lambeau Field. He he inaugurated that field, right? He played in the first game ever played there. I think I'll let you clear that up. Actually, uh, they played all of their games originally at East High School, which was a high school stadium there in Green Bay, and then they built – what's now today Lambeau Field, but at the time it was called City Stadium. And the inaugural season at Lambeau was in 1957, and the first home game there was against the Chicago Bears. And as well as I remember, Richard Nixon was there, and Miss Miss America came in. It was big doings. But, uh, yeah, that was the first game played at Lambeau. And I, I think he actually – and I know this because somebody sent me DVDs old black and white DVDs of those games. And I remember watching that one. And I think he actually scored the second touchdown. He didn't score the first points there. He scored the second touchdown of that game and they beat the bears that day. But um, I think what you're probably thinking of is he scored the first points in Dallas Cowboys franchise history by kicking a field goal. He retired. From the Packers, he, he came out of retirement and became the place kicker for the Dallas Cowboys, and it was a brand-new franchise, and he scored the first points for the Dallas Cowboys franchise. Yeah, right. it's, the other thing that I'll never forget is how he met your mom. Your mom was from Green Bay, and your dad was, what's it called? Not Crabapple. What's Alabama? Where, where was he? Uh, Pineapple. Pineapple. Alabama. Yeah, okay. I got it. <laughs> so, but she was dating Bay Perilli, who, who is that how you pronounce his name, Perilli? Babe Pirelli. Pirelli. Yeah. And yeah. he he's a, I'd read about him. He was a famous quarterback. 
And some of you young people won't have any idea who he is, but you Google him. She was dating him, and I think your dad, Fred, just kind of stole her from him. <laughs> I said, what a story. I, I love to aggravate my mother. Uh, she was dating the quarterback of the team, and then she ended up marrying the fullback of the team. And I said, you know, I don't really know if I want to know, but it sounds like you were pretty popular in Green Bay there with, with the hometown team. And- How is she doing? Well, she misses dad. You know, he passed away the end of last year. She misses him terribly. And, you know, we've seen grief in our job and we've dealt with it. And when you see it in your own family, she's lost without him. Of course, it's only been five months since right. he passed away. Right. So it's it's still relatively new. But they had one of those unusual marriages that you don't hear a lot about these days. And they were everything to each other. And and she waited on him hand and foot and it wasn't because he expect, expected it, but that's just what she did. And yeah. so she's lost now without him, but uh, uh, how long you know, were they married, Andy? 67 years. 67. I spent, I don't know, a couple of hours at least, right, Andy? Yeah. And they're with him you and did. just listening to their story and just could not believe it. One of the things I remember him very proud of was he was in World War II. He was a World War II veteran. Just talk about that. He was, you know, looking for a reason probably to get out of Pineapple, Alabama. And the truth was he tried to join the Marine Corps. His brother was a drill instructor at Paris Island. And he thought that was his oldest brother. So dad thought he would join the Marines. And he got rejected by the Marines because they determined he was colorblind. So they did not accept him. So he went home and thought about it and he says, well, you know what? I'm going to try again. I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can join the army. So he went to join the army and they went through these stations and I can just visualize what it was where you go from table to table for these, a battery of different tests. And he kind of slipped up to the front of the line at the table that was doing the colorblindness test. And they were asking, flipping through these pages and asking the same things over and over. And he said he memorized the colors depending on what page they flipped to, what colors do you see? I remember that now. And uh, so he memorized that and got back in line (laughs) and he passed the colorblindness test. So he joined the army. He was a paratrooper and he was gung-ho about going to Japan and seeing combat. You know, they didn't know better back in those days of the, the real horrors of war. Nobody did. And So that's what he thought he was going to do. And he actually got on a troop carrier ship and sailed out of San Francisco. He said he sailed right under the Golden Gate Bridge and they were on the water for days and days heading to Japan. And, you know, as luck would have it, while they were on the water heading to Japan, President Truman made the decision to drop the atomic bomb. And then a few days later, they dropped the second one. So their plans changed and the ship was diverted because of that. And because of the ultimate end of the war, the ship was diverted and he spent then the rest of his uh, army career in the Philippines guarding prisoners. <laughs> so, you know, you look back at things, you know, split second decisions that happen in your life and change, change everything. What if the bomb hadn't dropped? I think about that a lot. And what if he had gone to Japan? Would he have even come back? Uh, You know, and that's just a story for life of the little split second things that affect your life forever and ever. He loved his country. That is for sure. 
Yeah, he did. He, he looks back on those days fondly and talked about them quite often. He uh, finished his service. He went back to Alabama and he used part of his GI Bill to go to the local airport. I think it was in Montgomery and he got his pilot's license. He didn't need it, but he just decided that'd be a fun thing to do. And he learned to fly in a little Piper Cub, the little two-seater plane where one sits in front and the passenger right. sits behind. But he learned, he got his license to uh, to fly a Piper Cub. That was all before he decided he would like to play football because he had never played football before, but he just thought it'd be something he could do. So before we talk about the football, let's fast forward a little bit and talk about a little bit about what it was like being raised by your dad and mom? Well, you know, growing up, we were certainly aware. I was aware of his history in playing football, and I was aware of where I came from. I was born in Green Bay when he was playing with the Packers, and my mom was a Green Bay hometown girl. So, you know, I was aware that dad's whole adult life revolved around his football career. But the thing that I remember the most is he never tried to force that or that career path, whether it's in athletics or anything, he never tried to force his kids to follow a certain path. He was always there for guidance when we wanted, but he wanted us to find our own way. And he never put pressure on us to, to do this or that. He always, he and my mother both always led by example. You know, that was the biggest thing with them. It wasn't that they would sit down and tell you, this is what you need to do. You kind of looked at them and, and saw what they did and saw their happiness. And you learned from that. That's, right. that's what I remember the most, but it was a great, there was no question that because of his football career, we got to do, I, I look back at what I did as a kid. I did fun, fun things, you know, doors that were open that, never would have been opened before, you know, being on the sidelines during the Clemson games and which you couldn't do now because it's gotten so crazy and out of hand. And it was a different world back then, but. Well, you, we haven't even talked about your friendship, uh, his friendship with Bart Starr, and we're going to get into that. And I know yeah. you, you've named your, is it your son or your grandson named Bart? My son is named after Bart Yeah, Starr. And so yeah. this, there, the family connection there. So let's talk about Frank Howard's sister. I think her name was Hazel and how your dad yeah. ended up going to Clemson. Never played high school football in his life, right? And she saw him diving, I think. And she called her brother, Frank Howard, who Frank Howard is a legend football coach from Clemson. Anybody that follows sports would know him, but you may not if you're young. But talk about that, how that happened. Well, and I got to back up just a little bit before the, that story. My dad was almost an Auburn Tiger instead of a Clemson Tiger. He, uh, and this isn't really widely known, but when he got out of the service and went back home to Alabama, he saw in the paper that Auburn was going to have tryouts for the football team. And that wasn't that far from where they were living. And he and a buddy from where they were living at the time, I think they were living in, uh, Atmore, Alabama, or Elmore, one of the two. I can't remember what, what the name of the town was, but they both had Cushman scooters and they got on their Cushman scooters and rode to Auburn to try out for the football team and, and never had played football, of course, but he, he hurt his ankle in practice there. 
he didn't he didn't know if he did well or not, but he he bummed up his ankle and he said the head coach told him said uh, you might as well go on home. You, there's not going to be anything here for you. Uh, you're not going to have a football career at Auburn. So he got on his Cushman scooter and and went home. And after he got home, he really didn't have a focus on where he was going, but he did go to visit uh, my aunt, which was his sister in Biloxi. And they were at some community swimming pool there. He was swimming and talking with my sister. And and one of my aunt's good friends was Coach Howard's sister, who happened to be living in Biloxi as well. And she was at the pool. And she saw Dad dive off the diving board into the pool. I have no idea why, but she thought he looked pretty graceful and athletic when he dove. She uh, called her brother, Frank Howard, and said, "Uh, brother, I I think I've got you a a good football player. I don't think he's ever played football, though, but he sure did look like an athlete when he dove off the diving board. Things have changed, haven't they? (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, it wasn't like he didn't. Some people say, well, he got a scholarship offer because of that. Well, ultimately, that's true. But Coach Howard just had, I think, maybe one or two slots left. He had to turn in a list to the registrar at Clemson. So he just wrote his name in there and invited him up to come in on his own. He still had some GI Bill left. So he came on his own to Clemson because of that, because of the dive into the swimming pool in Biloxi. That's how he got there. So to put a comma there, Jerry Clower, the comedian, uh, I think he went to Mississippi State, right? And he played football. He had never played football in high school. Right. And I'm going to stop and play a little clip of of Jerry Clower trying to tackle Fred Cohn and uh, the, the single wing attack of Clemson. So let's just stop and play that. I'd like to tell you about the time we played Clemson. We got the scouting report, and I read on that single wing attacked. Fred Cohn, he's the great running back from Pineapple, Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! And I read further, and it said Fred Cohn had never played high school football. I had never played high school football. I said, my soul, I'm wanting to tackle him. (laughs) I'm wanting to get a hope to him. All the week we worked on defense in the single wing. The coach said, Jerry, if you feel yourself getting through and you know they are letting you get through, you turn to the inside and hit the first jersey, what ain't the color of yours? (laughs) I mean, you strike it. I just thought I was so good they couldn't handle me. Woo, and I was at Fred Cohn fixing to do that spin and run right up to middle. And I was fixing to reach for him and whop! Up to middle he went, boogity, boogity, boogity. <laughs> now, friends, there ain't no feeling like that feeling of playing football. And you laying flat on your belly on the ground, watching the feller you was supposed to have tackled running away from you, and his numbers getting smaller and smaller as he runs. <laughs> Obviously, he became a great football player at Clemson, and he he won all kind of awards. I mean, talk a little bit about he was a fullback 
but he was also was he a kicker at Clemson as well? I'm sure he was, or was he? Yeah, he was back then it wasn't unusual for you know for the kicker to have a dual role, so he did kick there too. And he was an icon. He became eventually came in the Clemson Hall of Fame, the Clemson Circle of Honor. I think he's in the South Carolina Football Hall of Fame. Every football honor you can get. When he retired, he came back and worked for Clemson in the athletic department, right, as a recruiter. Yeah. Um, after his career at Green Bay ended, he, he taught for two years at UMS, which is a military school in Mobile. And then he went and played one season with Dallas. But it's funny, he was listening to the radio at some point in that era and coach Howard had a son, Jimmy Howard that played at Clemson as well. But I think that dad heard a radio broadcast of coach Howard's son. He was playing in the shrine bowl or some high school all-star game. And dad heard it on the AM radio and heard his name called Jimmy Howard. And dad had known who Jimmy was, of course. And he sent Jimmy a telegram a Western Union telegram, and Jimmy still has it to this day, but he just congratulated him for being in this game and told him how proud he was. And I I think Jimmy showed that telegram to his dad, Coach Howard. And dad believes that it was that telegram that he sent to Jimmy that planted the idea in Coach Howard's mind that, you know what, Fred may be a good recruiter. I need to see if he's interested in coming to Clemson and working on my staff as a recruiter. And that's ultimately what happened. He worked there for 12 years as the chief recruiter for the football program. Unbelievable. And I know maybe it was last year they introduced him at the field and he got a loud ovation. And That's right. It wasn't uh, – last season he wasn't able to really – they gave him wonderful seats there, but the problem was you had to walk up from the portal to the last row of the lower deck, and he was really having a struggle doing that. I had to help him, and I knew if he went back again, I'd probably have to piggyback him up the steps because <laughs> he was having having the trouble navigating those steps. But the season before that, um, a good friend of mine is the sports information director down there, and I said, look, I'm going to bring Dad – to this game and it's probably going to be the last game he'll be able to go to. And I was telling him that just because we needed help getting into the stadium, we needed a golf cart to come pick us up from the parking place and get us into the stadium and help us up the the steps. Well, I didn't realize it, but the guy's name is Tim Beret, who's the sports information director. That was a, a televised game, which they almost all are now. And he wrote a script and passed it on to the networks that were broadcasting the game. And they recognized him during the game and the camera zoomed in on him and he stood up and waved and they just said something, you know, a tribute to him about being a former Clemson player and in the ring of honor. And they zoomed in on his name on the stadium and talked about him being the oldest living Packer at the time. And it was just a real uh, emotional tribute to him and he got a standing ovation and that was the the last time he attended a game there and what a way to go out yeah i I read that and here's a man that that gave his life to football and gave his life to clemson seemed honored that late in his life most people in the stands except for 
knowing his name would know nothing about what he did. So anything I missed of his honors that you can talk about? Well, I remember in addition to the, the ring of honor, honor and the uh, hall of fame and so forth, I think the most recent award he got is he was selected to be the Clemson all century team, I remember seeing which that. was the greatest yeah. players in the past hundred years. Right. He was selected to be a part of that, which was a great tribute because, you know, when he played, it was a different era, different athletes. Yeah. And athleticism today is just so beyond what it was back in that era. And to be selected to, to fit in with these modern athletes is quite an honor. So that was, that was a great award. Yeah. I saw that. Uh, and not surprised. I know they're new modern athletes, but I can look at him in those younger pictures. He was an athlete. I can promise you that. <laughs> and to think that he did all that and never played high school football and just yep. because the coach's sister said, this guy can dive, bring him in. And he had one spot on the team. Let's see what he's got, bring him in. And yep. that, that started amazing things. So he graduated from Clemson and now he's, he told, I remember him telling me the story of he was drafted, I think went in third round by Green Bay. Do I remember that right? And is that correct? Yeah, he was, it was the third round and it, he was the 27th overall pick. Uh, but, the old post office at Clemson is right there on the corner. I could, the building is still there. Of course, it's not a post office anymore, but he told me he went to check his mail uh, one day and, you know, wasn't expecting anything at all to do with a football career, but he opened his box there at the post office and there was a letter from the Green Bay Packers and he opened it and it was a contract and it was, uh, you know, an offer to, or a notice that you've been drafted and had the contract in the, in the envelope there. And it said that if sign and return, if you accept this offer and it was $5,500 for his first year with the Packers. And he just thought, Oh my goodness, that's more money than he could ever have imagined. <laughs> he signed it right there on the counter at the post office and sealed it back up and mailed it back to wherever green Bay was. And he went, and found a map to find out where Green Bay was. He had no idea where it was, but he knew he was going there to play ball. And not only that, he was from South Alabama moving to Green Bay, Wisconsin. (laughs) He went to Green Bay during that time he met your mom. Let's talk about that a little bit. That that story needs to be told. Yeah, we talked earlier. She was actually – she was a hometown girl there in Green Bay, and there, you know, not a lot in Green Bay, but – the Packers were big then, just as they are now. It's a funny story, Bruce. She, my mother was actually going to nursing school in Chicago, and she was dating Bay Pirelli, the quarterback. And the Packers had come to Chicago to play the Bears, and they were staying just a block or two from nursing school where my mother was enrolled there. After class, my mother walked up to the hotel and sat in the lobby with Bay Pirelli because he was in town and they wanted to see each other. And they were sitting right by the big front window of the hotel. My dad came walking up the sidewalk on the outside of the hotel and looked in the window and saw babe sitting there with my mother. And my mother looked up, said he tapped on the glass and walked up to the window 
and smushed his nose up and mouth as far as he could on the glass and just made the ugliest contorted face looking in the window there and then laughed and walked in and, and babe introduced uh, dad to, to my mom. He said, well, it sure is nice to meet you, but are there any other women at, at school that look as good as you that you could introduce me to? <laughs> that was their first introduction. And it, it was only a week or two after that, Bruce, that my mother had gone to the train station in Green Bay. Back then, if the Packers were going on the West Coast tour to play the 49ers and uh, the other West Coast team out there, I guess it was the Rams at the time, but they would take a train. So she went down to the train station to say goodbye to babe before they boarded the train and went out there. And she looked around and she saw dad on crutches. He had hurt his knee or leg or something. And he wasn't going to make the trip with the team. He was going to go back home to Alabama. So she walked over to him and said, Fred, please come home. She was, of course, living at home with her mom and dad, said, come to the house this morning and have breakfast. My mom and dad are there and you can at least have breakfast before you head home. And he said, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. I haven't even shaved this morning. But she said, listen, that doesn't matter. Come home with us and have breakfast. And he did. And uh, he ended up driving her back to Chicago on his way uh, to Alabama, ended up taking a job in Chicago because they had to work during off season back then. It was like a blue collar job, you know, making $5,500. They all had to have jobs and he got a job working, working for a cottonseed oil company in Chicago. So he could be close to her. That's how their relationship started. And, and babe was very, very gracious about it and uh, understood. So, yeah. So the, the next quarterback, before we get into what your dad did at green Bay, but the next quarterback was Bart Starr, right? Talk a little bit about it. This is very interesting to me. For you younger people, Google Bay Pirelli, Google Bart Starr. Bart Starr was a hero in my era growing up. I remember the Ice Bowl. I remember watching it. You know, I remember he was a superstar. But he was from Alabama. Talk about the friendship your dad had with Bart over the years and how that uh, mushroomed down to you guys. Well, Bart was drafted. Uh, of course, he went to Alabama, and he came to Green Bay, I think it was in 56, which was a couple of years uh, that Dad had left on his career there. So Bart came in as a rookie when Dad was a veteran there and being from Alabama, and Bart was married to Cherry, Cherry Star. They became very good friends. My dad kind of took Bart and Cherry in and made them feel comfortable and actually became very close friends with them. I remember when Cherry was pregnant with Bart Jr., my mother stayed with her in the hospital, even through the delivery, because dad and Bart were, they were either at training camp or on the road at a game, but they're playing for the Packers. They were out of town somewhere. Right. And so my mother stayed in the hospital when Cherry gave birth to Bart Jr. There was just the bond there between them that continued even after daddy left uh, Green Bay. And when we would vacation, after dad's career was over in professional football and we were growing up in Clemson, we would still vacation to green Bay to see our relatives up there. 
and I would, I would go and stay at Bart's house. So Bart Jr. was my age or close to it. We were not that far apart. So I'd spend my summers over there at Bart's house, hanging out with him and terrorizing the neighborhood. So we were very, very close friends. And uh, Bart was, he was a gentleman. I mean, he would just had a presence about him that was an incredible human being. I know that they stayed in touch throughout the years. In fact, all of you have, right? I mean, you've, you've all been in touch oh, yeah. with your family and stayed in touch. Yeah, we get Christmas cards always, uh, you know, and Bart died recently, but Cherry still sends my mother uh, cards. And she actually called, I think, after Dad passed away. And the last time I was in Green Bay at, for a game, Dad got invited up to be uh, for one of the Packer reunions. And I walked in the lobby of the hotel there and ran right into Bart Jr. And so it was good to see him. And yeah, it was it was quite an experience and something I'll never forget. I know it had to be fun watching Bart Starr's career later as he blossomed into a superstar for you, right? And your dad. Oh, yeah. And so when I would go up there on vacations, you know, I was like in 10 years old in that era back uh around 67 and those were the years that the Super Bowl had just started like Super Bowl one I think was in 66 or 67 and you know that didn't really register on me I enjoyed watching Bart on TV playing in the games but I was just more thrilled going and hanging out at his house and playing he had a riding lawnmower in his garage that captivated my interest I wanted him to take me for a ride on his riding lawnmower that was unusual back in the days right Oh, it was. That was one of the first ones I'd ever seen. And he did. He took me on a ride on it. <laughs> Your dad had a great career at Green Bay, too. And he was inducted to the Green Bay Packer Hall of Fame. For years, he held the record for the most points scored there, right? Yeah, he did. I don't know that he's still in that, where it lists there. But when we went back a few years ago, I remember when they introduced him at some function there that he was still in the top 10 as far as scoring. But, you know, it was a little easier then because he could score a touchdown and he'd stay in and kick the extra point and he kicked field goals too. So that helped rack up the points. You don't see that yeah. in this day and time. There's got to be a few game stories that you've heard him talk about, whether it's at Clemson or whether it's at Green Bay. Can you think of any off the top of your head you remember? Well, I, you know, he didn't really talk a lot. I mean, if you asked him, of course, he would tell you the stories, but he didn't like to just sit around and reminisce about it. He was he was a humble and modest guy, and I, I love that about him. But when this gentleman sent me these DVDs of all the Packer games, every game he played in, I watched those old black and white reels that had been converted to to DVDs, and there was one game, and I don't know who the Packers were playing, but Dad rushed for a touchdown. He scored the touchdown. He kicked the extra point, and then he kicked it off. He kicked the ball <laughs> off and went down the field and tackled the guy <laughs> after he fielded his kickoff. And I thought, now how often do you see that today? That was, that was huh. just something that I thought was pretty incredible. I think part of why he was inducted in the Hall of Fame then was because, and you don't see it again, as we said, the athletes back then had multiple roles. A lot of them did, you know, and so he, 
he, you know, and I've heard them say a multiple, he was a multiple threat was the way he was introduced as a running back and a kicker and that kind of thing. And he was just an all around durable, hard nosed athlete. And that's probably, uh, had a lot to do with it. So, uh, and, and I think at that time too, the hall of fame was an, a new creation up there They hadn't had the hall of fame long. What part. year was he inducted? Do you remember? Yeah, 1973. Okay. The Packers invited him three times that I can remember to come be an honorary captain before the game. And I thought, my goodness, there's no way I'm going to miss that. I want to see him walk out on the field and be introduced. And uh, so I was able to tag along and they would give us tickets and give us the tour of the locker rooms and so forth. And Lambo has gone through some amazing renovations compared to what it was back in the day. You know, we talked about how little occurrences change the course of someone's life. Um, and I remember dad at one point was homesick when he was at Clemson. You know, he had gone there on the GI Bill and was doing pretty good, but he knew that his GI bill wasn't going to sustain him forever there. And he, he wasn't on scholarship and he was homesick and he made the decision. I'm going to go home. I'm going to quit. And he went into the locker room where the field house is, is what it was called then. And he said, I'm going to steal a football and a pair of cleats and at least take that home with me. I'm going home because I don't think this is going to work out. Well, he got a football and a pair of cleats and he's going out the locker room door and he ran right smack dab into coach Howard, who was walking in the locker room and coach Howard looked at him in that gruff voice of his. And he said, Hey, said, I see you must be going out to kick a few field goals. Aren't you? I like that practicing on your own like that. And of course, daddy was, caught red-handed, but he didn't give in. He said, yes, sir, coach, I'm going to go out and, and just kick a few around. He said, well, I've been meaning to tell you, I'm going to start, we're going to start paying for your schooling from here on out. You're going to be on scholarship. So that brief meeting right there, he was ready to go home. He was headed home with his football and cleats because he thought it was over. So, you know, those chance occurrences in life how how many of them do we all see that change the course of your life some that you control and some that you don't but uh so maybe the secret is we need to be looking for those right that's exactly right that's exactly right tell me a little bit about how the jerry clower when he realized that the famous comedian jerry clower had did did he know him did he remember him when he told the story or how did that come about he remembered playing Mississippi State, but he didn't remember Jerry Clower. And I, I do think that when that album came out, you know, back then, uh, again, you can how times change. Comedians actually did LP albums. You remember those oh, comedy yeah. albums? Oh yeah. His contract was was with MCA Records, and Jerry Clower actually mailed my dad a copy of the album. And that was the first time I think I still have the album somewhere, but he, uh, he sent him that album and Jerry Clower was very popular back then during that day. And he actually came to Clemson for a, a concert 
and dad got to meet him. He told that story on stage at Clemson. And I don't think he knew dad was there. He acted like he knew he was there, but dad did get to go backstage and meet him after the concert. And that was, that was a highlight. I'm sure. Your dad died on new year's Eve of this past year. Uh, just talk about that. You and I both have been in this business all our lives and we've taken care of a lot of families and you got no telling how many families you've taken care of. I know it brings it home in a different way when you, even though he had broken his hip and I think he'd had surgery and tell a little bit about what's going on for a son who idolized his dad when he passed away, even at a late age. Yeah. And you know, you're right. We, that was our job. It is our job caring for people that are going through this, but this was actually the first time in my life that I had lost someone that close to me. Dad had broken his hip several years ago. You know, he wasn't young at that time. He was 95 when he passed away, but he had real difficult time getting over the anesthesia from the first time he broke his hip. I always knew that if he was, if he broke his hip again, he probably wouldn't come out of it. And so when I got the call that he had fallen and they think he broke his hip, I was traveling, but I turned around and I went straight to the hospital. You know, I had seen my dad at 95 years old. He had slowed down. He was having trouble walking. His mind was still pretty good and could tell some stories if you would engage him in conversation, but he used to laugh and say, you know, time waits for no man. And, and that's true. When he went to the hospital, something told me that he probably won't come home. We were optimistic and we knew he was tough. And if anybody could fight it and come out, he would, but, after two weeks in the hospital, his hemoglobin had gotten to the point where he was going to have to have transfusions to even stay alive. And the doctors recommended that we make an appointment with their comfort care team the next morning to talk about just making him comfortable because he wasn't going to get better. And that's when it really hit home. And so we had an appointment that next morning to meet with the team and, and, talk about what we wanted to do. And my nephew is a nurse in the ER and he went to see him the night before we were supposed to meet with the comfort care team. And he called me, my nephew did and said, you need to come over here tonight because he's not going to make it to morning time. And so we did, I called my kids and my sister and didn't want my mother to go with us because she was been through enough already, but we went to the hospital and we sat around the bed and talked to him. And of course they had him on a lot of oxygen with a mask this time that he had to keep strapped on him. But Bruce, I have seen and many teammates of my dad over the years that have suffered Alzheimer's and serious dementia and one in particular that was my dad's best friend that had Alzheimer's so bad, he didn't know where he was. The family had to spoon feed him and they would reach over and put their hand on his chin and do his chin up and down to remind him that he needed to chew his food. And privately, I had prayed that 
don't let that happen to dad. I wanted him to go out with some dignity. I didn't want to see him diminish to that point. So as sad as it was, I almost feel like a prayer was being answered because we knew dad was going to die. And we had an occasion to sit around the bed with him. He looked at each person that was sitting around the bed that night. And he said the most beautiful things to each one of us. I mean, things that were just, you wondered, is this him speaking or is it someone else speaking through him? Hmm. And he said the most beautiful things. And then he led us in prayer. And that wasn't like my dad, not that he wasn't a religious man, he was. But I'm not talking about recited the Lord's Prayer. He said one of the most beautiful prayers that I'd ever heard in my life and was just amazed. And it was so clear. And after he did that and after he had spoken to all the family that was in the room, we said, Dad, you're tired now. Take off your mask and go to sleep. And he did. And we sat there with him. I held his hand until he passed away uh, later that night. But I miss him to this day. But you know what? My prayer was answered because he went in a dignified way. And that's what I had asked for. And I'm so thankful for the time that I had with him and the fact that he was my dad. I'm a lucky man. Yeah, you know, you didn't have one thing to do with that. You didn't choose him. God did it and he extended yep. his grace to you. And and as you you live your life out, you extend grace to a lot of people. That's undeserved favor. And that's what you guys had. I mean, he was an incredible man. And folks, when I started, this is podcast is called View from a Hearse, which really means living life with the end in mind. And if you can figure out how to live your life with all the fun he had, the family time, all the stuff he did, and to get to the end of your life and have your family surrounded about you and be able to say what he said to them and say that prayer. He lived with the end in mind, and he, 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 went, out, he went out a Hall of Famer in life. What you just heard from Andy is a lot bigger award than he got at Clemson or he got at Green Bay, or he had at Dallas, That uh, he's a Hall of Fame dad. And that, that's the most important, isn't it, Andy? What a, what a life he had. Uh, I often think that I should jot all these things down and put it in a journal. And what you're doing here helps to document that. But he had, a, he had an incredible life to be dirt poor from Pineapple, Alabama. <laughs> he, he, he turned it into a great life. The most important thing I can say, Bruce, is what I learned from watching my mom and dad, and that's live your life and knowing that you're leading by example. It, you know, a lot of people are quick to talk and instruct and tell you what you should do in your life. And and sometimes that advice is good, but the most meaningful thing that any one of us can ever do for our families is live a life that that teaches by what you do, not what you say you're going to do and lead by example. And, and that's what I've learned. And I hope that I've done for my children and grandchildren. And, um, that's all you can do in this world. 
And people are watching, right? People That's are watching. Exactly right. So, folks, I'm a purebred Georgia Bulldog, and I'm a rabid Georgia Bulldog fan, but I'm talking to <laughs> a rabid Clemson University fan and an icon from Clemson University. And I want to tell you, this Georgia Bulldog was very honored to have the opportunity in my life to meet Fred and Judy Cohn in the house. And I was very honored to have the opportunity to have a friendship with this man we were talking to, Andy Cohn. Andy, I can't thank you enough, man. Appreciate you doing this. I'm, I'm honored that you agreed to come on here with me. It's been my pleasure, Bruce. So thank you for having me. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker.